0: Well, listen, if you brought your Bibles tonight, we're going to be in Luke chapter 24. You can open there. And as you're opening there, we just reflect on what tonight is. What is this day? And this day is the day that 1,983 years ago, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ gave himself to die for us. You know, when Jesus died on the cross, it left his followers, it rocked their world. It left them shaken, just completely rocked them to the core. And we, we encounter a couple of them here in Luke's gospel, Luke chapter 24. They're walking, walking on the road to Emmaus. It's actually Sunday morning. Jesus has actually risen from the dead. But they don't have a clue. And so they're walking in darkness, they're walking in confusion, and we find them here in Luke's Gospel, Luke chapter 24, and we pick it up in verse 13, and it says, Now behold, two of them were traveling that same day to a village called Emmaus, which was seven miles from Jerusalem, and they talked together of all these things which had happened, and so it was, while they conversed and reasoned that Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were restrained, so that they did not know him. And he said to them, what kind of conversation is that that you have with one another as you walk along and are sad? And and the one whose name was Cleopas answered, and he said to him, are you the only stranger in Jerusalem, and you have not known the things which have happened there these days? He's like, what are you, new? I mean, everybody in the world knows what's going on. What is going on? You don't know what's going on. Are you the only one? What's happened there? And he said to them, verse 19, What things? And so they said to him, The things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how the chief priests and our rulers delivered him to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these things happened. Yes, and certain women of our company who arrived at the tomb early astonished us when they did not find his body. They came saying that they had also seen a vision of angels who said he was alive, and certain of those who were with us went to the tomb, and they found it just as the woman had said but him they did not see. They said, look, you know, it's bad enough. They, they, they killed the guy that we were hoping in. All of our hopes and dreams pinned on this guy. It was bad enough. But now they've taken away his body too. They're, this is the idea. They said he's risen from the dead. But they, but they didn't see it. We, we, we don't see it. We don't know. And all we know is that, you know, now they've killed him. And now even his body is gone. Luke says there in verse 15 that they conversed and they reasoned together. The word in the Greek is uh sootheteo. so you know you know what that means. So you know we can move on. But um No, Sudze what it means is it means that they discussed, they disputed, and they questioned. And and the word gives us a perfect picture of the state of their hearts and minds. What's going on here with these disciples in the fact that they are a picture of anguish, they're a picture of confusion, they are a picture of turmoil, they are absolutely trying to make sense of it all. And in short, what's going on is that Jesus' followers are rocked, their world is rocked By this event, and they're they're rocked to the point that their faith is shattered, and they've lost all hope. They have lost all hope. Notice again there that what they say in regards to Jesus when he says what things, and, and notice all of the language that they use in the past tense. They say the the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet. And then they go on in verse 20, and they say, and now the chief priest in our own rule is delivered and be condemned to death and crucified. Him. But, verse 21, we, we were hoping that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Indeed, besides all this, today is the third day since these have happened. And so their idea there is, man, he was this, and we were hoping this. But you know what? We've lost all hope. Some of you here tonight, maybe, you know, you've experienced a time when your hopes have been dashed, when your world has been rocked, when you would talk of terms in the past tense, and I, I had this ambition, I had this dream, I had, I had this expectation, and I was hoping, and all seems lost to you. Well, this is exactly where these disciples are. They, they, they are in the place where they're saying, is it all a lie? Is, is everything that I trusted in, is it, is it just gone? Is it just like that? And now it leaves them in the place where they're completely rocked, where they're completely shattered. And, and I think if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you know that experience. You know the times when God allows something happens in your life. He allows something to come in and it causes you to doubt. It causes you to fear. It causes you to question everything. And you think, well, what, is, what does this mean in light of everything that I thought that Jesus had promised in my life, everything that I had expected out of my life? And if and if and if this has happened and shaken my world like this, well how can I how can I really know that what I trusted in is real? How can I how can I I'm just I'm questioning everything now. And so just like these disciples on the road to Emmaus, they're just arguing and and conversing over everything. And they're like, yeah, he said this. No, I know, but then he's dead. They killed him, you know. And this is the attitude that's going on. We've had those conversations, right? Those three o'clock in the morning conversations that you have as you're tossing on your pillow. And you're doubting and you're fearing. Well, we, as Christians in the 21st century, We have what Jesus' disciples lacked in this hour. Because what they were lacking in this hour is perspective. We, in the 21st century, we can read ahead in the book. We know that Jesus has risen from the dead. That's what the Bible teaches. And so we can have that knowledge to where we can say, yes, Friday was a bummer, man. And Friday was just horrible. But Sunday's coming. And and so we can look past Friday to Sunday, and we can can hear this story, and we read it with a whole different mindset, a a whole different concept. But I want you to put yourself in their shoes. They don't don't have that concept. They don't have that perspective. Now, they should have. Jesus told them that this is how it was going to go, but they didn't have that perspective. And so the, 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 the places, without this perspective, man, they didn't know the end of the story. Now, some of you are here, and perhaps you, you lack that perspective. It's interesting to me, as I look at this text, it says that Jesus himself draws near and goes with them, and they don't have a clue. They don't know that it's the Lord. Now, if you've read in Luke 24, you know as the story unfolds that Jesus goes with them and he he makes like, you know, he doesn't know they say these things and then he he says, you, you're foolish. And he talks to them about, you know, the scriptures and how what the prophets said should be fulfilled and all. And then they get to where they're going and he makes believe like he's going to go on, you know, a little farther. And they say, oh no, stay with us, stay with us. And then he stays with them and then they have a meal and he breaks the bread. And, And as soon as he does that, that they, they, they see, they, he's been saturating them with the word of God. And they've been hearing how the word of God applies to their circumstance, their situation, Jesus' death. What has transpired in their hearts? Their eyes are opened. Why? Because their faith within them has been restored by Jesus Christ. You see, it says there in verse 17, when or I'm sorry, in verse 16 it says, but their eyes were restrained so that they did not know him. Why were their eyes restrained? Well, the Bible says that God reveals himself to our hearts by faith, right? And and the Bible says that, that he's a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. And so what happens for these disciples is they enter into a place where by faith their eyes are open. By faith they get to see Jesus Christ. Now, some of you are in that place tonight. Some of you are in the place tonight where you come here, you're a Christian and you say, Oh, you know what? I, I, I know the Lord. I know the end of the story. I have faith in Jesus Christ that He suffered, died, was buried, that He rose again on the third day. Some of you are in the place where you don't have that faith where 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 maybe you 've heard the story, but you have yet to 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 make that faith yours, and because you haven 't made that faith yours, even though Jesus is with you present with you you don 't you don 't see you don 't comprehend you don 't know now if that 's in the place if that 's the place that you 're in the, the the person that hasn 't surrendered their life to the Lord. Or if you're in the place where you have surrendered your life to the Lord. Either way, regardless of your perspective. Listen, it's important tonight that we reflect upon what happened 1,983 years ago. It's important that we hear and reflect upon what is it that happened on that Friday. What are the implications for us? You see the Bible says in the book of Genesis that God created man in his own image. Now that means a lot of different things, but one of the things that that means is that God created you like himself in the sense that he's given you the, the a, a capacity to choose you are a free moral agent, right? And so you have this this power of choice that you can choose whether you are going to hear and receive and obey, or you can choose whether you are going to reject. You say, how is that like God? Because God is sovereign. God is sovereign. Sovereignty means that he's got, he's got the control. He's sovereign. And God's created you as a sovereign being over your life. And you have the opportunity, in this regard He's created you as a sovereign being over your life, you have the opportunity to receive or reject the Lord. Well, God gave us that free will to choose. And what happens? Well, we, we, we read that in, in Genesis chapter 3 that man rebelled against God. Why did God give you the freedom to choose? Here's the short answer. It's love. If you had no capacity to choose, then what you would have towards God is not true love. C.S. Lewis talks about this. And he says basically that, you know, God, for, for him to have a true loving relationship with you, he has to give you the capacity to accept him or to reject him. And if you choose to listen, to heed his voice, to respond to his invitation, then your love relationship with God is a true and a genuine love because you have used your sovereign will given to you by God to say, Lord, I'm going to hear, I'm going to believe, I'm going to surrender and I'm going to enter into fellowship with you. Well, Genesis chapter 3, man rebelled against God. The Bible calls this rebellion sin. It's an old archery term. It simply means to miss the mark. God's mark being perfection. Mankind has missed God's mark of perfection. If you were here last Sunday, we talked about this a little bit. I talked to you about how God created man, and how God gave to man His standard in the Old Testament. He gave to us the Ten Commandments. And the purpose of the Ten Commandments was to show us God's standard of perfection. Now God gave it to us knowing that we weren't going to keep it. So what did He do? He gave to us a a sacrificial system there in the Old Testament so that when they failed to keep these Ten Commandments, then they could make the sacrifices necessary to atone for their, their missing the mark. Now, what God did in implementing that was to say, hey, I want to give you a picture of that which is yet to come. And so he gives to us a picture. The Bible says the law is our tutor to bring us to Christ. And so that's what that's all about. So that when you sin, when you miss the mark, when you make a sacrifice to a stone for the sin, you are getting a picture to look forward to. Jesus coming in the person and work of Jesus Christ coming in the form of a man dying on the cross for your sin in your place. And so, so this is the, this is the, the gospel in a nutshell. The Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and that the wages of sin is death. But fortunately for us, we have a Father in heaven who loves us and who's gone to great lengths to reconcile us. And so although all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death, the gift of God, Romans 6.23 says, is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Jesus told Nicodemus, John 3.16, we all know the verse, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. My favorite verse in the Bible, Romans 5.8. God demonstrates his own love for us in this. that While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Now, we hear this all the time. We hear that, hey, God loves the world. Hey, God gave his only son to die on the cross for our sins in our place. And we, we hear this message a lot. And here's the problem with this. The problem with this is that because we hear it so much, and because we know the end of the story, you and I can get to the place where we become callous to what it is that actually transpired, 1,983 years ago. We get callous to the place where we really, truly miss the understanding of just what it is that God did, and and why He did it. The Gospels record that Jesus endured the most horrific execution in the history of mankind. He was scourged, first of all. Scourging is done with a device that's called a cat of nine tails. It is a a leather handle with with nine leather strips that come out from it. Uh, It's about, you know, a couple feet long. And in those leather strips there are embedded lead weights and uh, metal barbs and glass shards within them. The lead weights are designed to welt your skin and to cause it to swell. And then the glass and the metal bars are or barbs are designed to dig into the flesh and actually remove the flesh. And so as your, your body swells and the fluids rush to that area and the tissues become expanded and the and the, and the blood underneath, the, the liquid underneath rising up, those things find a place where they can dig deep in and cause maximum tissue damage. This is what the device was designed to do. The penalty was 40 lashes. And what the Romans would do is they would take one away, which they called mercy. And so Jesus endured 39 lashes. And this was often fatal. This would not just cause a surface uh, injury. These barbs would go deep, and as the flesh was exposed, they would then go into the exposed flesh, and they would fillet that open. And it was not uncommon, and the historians give accounts to where this process would expose ribs, it would expose the lungs, and it would expose other vital organs. This is the first of what Jesus endured. After Jesus was scourged, the Bible records that he was severely beaten and spat upon by the guards. They took him in with his back completely Laid open. And they mashed a crown of thorns down on his head. And they, they, they put a robe over him. And, and they mocked him as, as the king. And, and, and then they, they, they covered his head and they beat him up. And they beat him up so severely. And as they're beating him, they're saying, they're mocking him. They're saying, prophesy, who hit you? And with him being covered and his face being covered, man, when the blow is coming, if somebody tries to hit you instinctively, you're going to recoil from it. You're going to absorb some of the energy by moving yourself. Well, he couldn't see them coming. Isaiah the prophet says that he was beaten beyond recognition. He said, many were amazed when they saw him. Beaten and bloodied, so disfigured, one would scarcely know that he was a person. Well, after that, Jesus was made to carry a 200-pound cross down the Via De La Rosa, the way of suffering, to the place of the skull, Golgotha. We call it Calvary. It's interesting if you go there, the place where he's at. They they called it that because the hillside actually looks like a human skull. It's interesting. you 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 can sit. There's a spot in the garden tomb. Where you, you can sit up on, on a hill just a little away from the tomb and you look down over this hill and you look down and there sits Golgotha. It's ironic now because it's an Arab bus station at the base of Golgotha. And now there's, you know, and, and I, I see that as being, uh, you know, really a fitting kind of thing because here you have a place where, you know, a meeting place of people trying to go somewhere. Listen, the place of the cross is a place to go somewhere because you can go from darkness to light if you recognize what transpired there on Golgotha. Jesus carried his cross and he went to Golgotha. He went to the place of the skull. And there he died in agonizing death on the cross. Now, what you got to understand about crucifixion is that it was designed to inflict the maximum pain For as long as possible. As if Jesus hadn't been through enough. And listen, just the scourging alone was enough to kill people. And it often did kill people. Just the scourging. Jesus having been scourged, having been beaten, having had to carry his cross, 200 pounds worth, up to this hill. And then he was crucified. And in the process of crucifixion, The Gospels give us some of the details, but they spare us most of the details. Historians provide us a vivid description of what transpired. It's important that I go through this. It's important that we listen to this. Because, again, we become callous to this. Jesus died on the cross for our sins in our place. I've heard it. You've heard it but we can't be callous to it. We have to to consider what it is that Jesus went through. Crucifixion was designed uh, by the the Greeks and it was perfected by the Romans. And um, (laughs) perfected being kind of a perverse word, but they perfected it as an implement of torture. And, uh, And it started, you know, with nailing uh, the, the hands and the feet to the cross now they, the nails wouldn't go through the hands through the palms they would go through the base of the palm they would go in between the radius and the ulna and they would sever the median nerve there and so what would happen is this would, this would allow your, your, the, the nails to support the entire weight of your body if it was just through the flesh of your hands it would not support the entire weight of your body and, and they would they would do so with your arms not completely extended but with your elbows slightly flexed. And, and by going through, what would happen is the weight of your body would pull down and it would stretch out your diaphragm. And so you, you cannot breathe with your diaphragm stretched up. So how do you breathe then? Well, you have to pull on the nails to lift your body up so that you can physically take in a breath. And And every time... You would pull to take a breath. Have you ever hit your elbow on something and that fire that goes down your arm and settles in your palm of your hand and it burns so bad? That's the nerve that you would pull on when you would pull on those nails to take a breath. That gives new meaning to Jesus' words from the cross, does it not? When Jesus said, Father, forgive them that they know not what they're doing. Hey, he had to pull on those nails to take the breath to allow that air to escape through his trachea and across his vocal cords for Jesus Christ to speak and to say that. Father, forgive them. Take a walk with that. Well, eventually, as you hung there and as the weight of your body would pull down, what would happen is that your elbows would become dislocated. And when your elbows then became dislocated, you still would have to pull using your arms. It just increased the level of pain. It just increased the level of discomfort. And so then the, the, the consequence of this is that it would hasten the lactic acid building up in your body. And it would, and as, and you, you know, you go running, you hurt, right? What's what's the reason you hurt? Well, if you're me, it's because you're out of shape. But what's the other reason that you hurt? The reason you hurt is because your body is building up lactic acid. This is, you know, if you're doing, you know, bench presses or curling or whatever it is, and you're you're there, and, you know, your spotter's yelling at you saying, push, 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 and your body's saying, stop, 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 stop. And the reason your body is saying stop is because the lactic acid has built so much up that it just hurts physically, And this is what's happening as you're hanging there on the cross. And so now at this point, your elbows are are out of joint. and, And you're experiencing pain like you've never known. Excruciating pain comes from crucifixion. It means out of the cross. That's what excruciating means. And so what would happen is at this point, men would often... Give up, and and they would simply suffocate. And so this is one of the ways that the Romans per- perfected crucifixion. They put a seat on the cross, and the seat was just low enough to where you couldn't breathe, but it allowed you to at least get a little bit of rest, so that when you got des- so desperate for air that you could pull up again. And what this did was it it, it took that that crucifixion that might kill you in in a matter of hours it extended it out and now crucifixion could take days the longest recorded person who hung on a cross 13 days and they would hang them in such a way that as they sat there and they were right along the road and this was a warning to everybody who came to say don't you cross Rome don't you cross us And as they would hang there, wild animals and dogs and birds would begin to feed on the victim while he's still alive. People would spit upon them. They would become an object of scorn and ridicule. Ultimately, what would happen is that at some point, you would suffer a massive heart attack and your heart would either either fail or it would, in some cases, burst open. It would explode. This, medically speaking, is, is what medical professionals believe happened to Jesus. And why do they believe that? Well, because the Jews were wanting, because the Passover was coming, and these three had been crucified, and they didn't want them hanging on the crosses during the Passover. And so after a short period of time, just several hours, they, they persuaded the Romans to say, hey, can you get, a, can you get this thing over with? And so they went to the thief on the cross and the man, the man on the other side of Jesus and they broke their legs to hasten their death. And they came to Jesus and much to their shock, he had already died. And so what did they do to Jesus? They took a spear and they rammed it into his side and it says that the blood and water poured out. Again, medically speaking. Medical professionals say what happened was that spear going through between his ribs went through his lung and into his pericardium. And, and when blood and water came pouring out, it was an indication that he had experienced a heart rupture, and that he was in fact dead. Now, as that spear goes through his lungs, lungs that just before had been filling up his body so that he could say, Father, forgive him. They don't know what they're doing. And as we consider all of this, I want you just to keep in mind that Jesus endured all this for you and for me. And what makes it even the worse when we consider what has done... You remember when when the Passion of the Christ came out and there was a great deal of controversy because... The, the, there was the allegations that, oh, you know, Mel Gibson thinks that, that this is the, the, the Jews' fault. It's the Jews that killed Jesus. And there was that big debate in the news, who killed Jesus? You and me killed Jesus. That's who killed Jesus. You and I. Charles Finney said this. He says, it's a simple thing to say that Jesus died for the sins of the world. But it's quite another thing to say that Jesus died for my sins. It's a shocking thought that we can be as indifferent as Pilate who washed his hands of Jesus, as scheming as Caiaphas who missed Jesus in his religion, as callous as the soldiers who beat Jesus, as ruthless as the mob who called for the death of Jesus, or as cowardly as the disciples who ran away from Jesus. It wasn't just them, Charles Finney said, it is you and me that nailed Jesus to the tree. We know the end of the story. We know that Jesus rose again on the third day. We know that his death is the most extraordinary expression of the, of the love of God that mankind will ever see or ever know. That God the Father is sovereign and in control. We know that Jesus wasn't a victim of his circumstance. He wasn't a victim of cruel men. Jesus willingly laid down his life. Jesus said this to his disciples, I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it again. This command I have received from my Father. Now we understand this because we know the end of the story. Jesus rose again, defeating Satan, sin, and death. And this Sunday, we're going to rejoice in that hope. We're going to rejoice in that victory. Tonight, we can look upon Jesus' sufferings. And for us, you know, as we consider His sufferings, and that He did it for you and me, and that He did it in His love, we can come away and we can know, you know what? That God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever would believe in Him would not perish, but have everlasting life. We can know that God demonstrates His own love towards us, and that while we're yet sinners... Christ died for us. And we can know that Jesus made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men and being found in an appearance as a man. He humbled himself and he became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. But here in our text, if I can bring you back to it, these two disciples don't have a clue. They have no idea. We can say tonight, thank you, Lord Jesus, that we come to Good Friday and we remember these horrible things that were done to Jesus on our behalf and we can see the victory. But these two disciples, they didn't see the victory. Why? Look, it's Sunday. Jesus has risen from the dead. But where is their mind? Where is their state of mind? They're on, they're on Friday. Billy Joel has a song, A New York State of Mind. These guys have a Friday state of mind, right? And and so I don't know where you're at tonight. I don't know what's going on in your life, and I don't know what your state of mind is, but listen, we need both. We need both. We We need the hope that the cross brings. We need to have a Sunday state of mind where the cross is concerned because it's by grace through faith that you and I can have a relationship with God knowing that Jesus paid the penalty for your sin. Past, present, and future. And some of you are here tonight. You're in a place where you have not fully received the forgiveness that's available for you in Christ because of what Jesus did on the cross. And I need you to hear me tonight. That, it, that if you're in that place and there's some sort of battle in your heart to where you say, look, I'm not worthy of this or, or man, I got to clean up my life a little bit before you know, I can be acceptable to God. Hey, there's, there's nothing you can do to clean your life up. The Bible says your righteousness is as, is as filthy rags to God. The only thing you can do. It's not a matter of saying, hey, you know, I got to wait till my life gets to a place where my good works outweigh my bad works. The only thing you can do is to receive the gift that was given to you by the Father in the work that Jesus did on the cross. He paid the penalty. When the Bible says the wages of sin is death, you get wages for what you've earned. Death is what you've earned by missing the mark, by not being perfect. But the Father loves you and he paid the penalty for you. Tonight, you need to understand that. You need to understand that when Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and that's where we're going, that's where we're heading, he defeated Satan's sin and death. So not only did he pay the penalty for your sin, but he rose from the dead conquering Satan's sin and death. And by placing your faith in him, you can conquer Satan's sin and death. And so we need the Sunday state of mind, but we also need to have the Friday state of mind. We also need to remember the great cost that Jesus paid on the cross. And he died on the cross because the Father loves you. And you need to hear that tonight. God loves you. And you might have the enemy who tempts you to sin and then jumps over to the other side and says, you suck and you can't come to God and look at everything you've done. And the best thing you can do with him is to agree with him. The Bible says that if we confess our sins... He's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That word confess, it means to agree. You agree with Satan. You're right. I'm a loser. I'm a blow it. I did all of those things. You agree with God. You know what? To you, I'm precious. And there's nothing, Romans chapter 8 says, that I can do that can separate me from the love of God. But there is one thing that you can do outside of a relationship with God to separate you from the love of God. And that, that's in your control. The handle is on the inside. and That is for you to reject the only atonement for your sin, which is Jesus' work on the cross.